At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew's Gospel, the second chapter. Seeking the Lord's blessing upon the reading of His Word will begin in verse 1. Let's give ear to the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Arise, 
Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and relying upon His blessing this evening, let's turn back in that passage that we read uh, to verse 15. Verse 15, which speaks of the flight of Joseph and Mary and the young child Jesus, the flight to Egypt, and then the return from Egypt, and says this, uh, that they were there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now we've been reflecting upon that prophecy from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. We reflected upon it on Saturday night as we considered the sense in which that statement of the prophet that when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. How that prophecy points us to God's redeeming love for His children. For every true believer, all those whom He chose for adoption through Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the world, He loved them. He loved them even before they were converted and redeemed. Even while they were yet sinners, He loved them. He sent His Son to die for them. And every true believer can know that God's love for them was even when they were lost and dead in trespasses and sins and uh, enslaved, as it were, in Egypt as a house of bondage. God loved His Son. God called His Son out of Egypt. He took the vine from Egypt and planted it in His own house and, and, and redeemed His own children through the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that as believers, our sonship is in God's eternal Son, Christ Himself. And that's why God speaks of Israel and of His covenant people in our day, the church, as His Son, as the church of the firstborn. Why? Because we've been brought out of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We then saw this Lord's Day morning that, in fact, not every person who was called out of Egypt in the Exodus was a true believer. In fact, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and through unbelief, they died in the wilderness. And yet we saw in Hosea chapter 11 that throughout that chapter, the Lord continues to plead with these nominal covenant members, these hypocrites, if you will, those who draw near outwardly but not inwardly. His heart is churning and yearning as it were the compassion of God 
flows out to them and He calls them out of Egypt and He roars with a mighty lion's roar and enables many of them to come out of darkness into the light and to walk with God. And so we took in the hypocrites' exodus. Uh, Not just that some hypocrites came out of the exodus as hypocrites, but that by the grace of God, many of them came out of their hypocrisy into a right relationship with God through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And now this evening, we turn our attention to an even deeper significance of this prophecy of Hosea as it's quoted here by the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 2, verse 15. We see here that this verse speaks to us not only of the people of God corporately or individually in Christ, but there's a sense in which Jesus Christ as the embodiment of Israel, as the embodiment of God's covenant people, His firstborn Son, this Jesus is their representative and the ultimate fulfillment even of that verse and of that notion of sonship. We're told that when Jesus with His uh, uh, earthly, uh, well, with His mother and His mother's husband Joseph, when He came out of Egypt, that this, as it were, was a fulfillment. Uh, Out of Egypt, God called His Son. And we're going to look at the significance here in three respects. We're going to see in this Savior's exodus, first, the Savior's symbolic exodus. Second, the Savior's decisive exodus. And thirdly, the Savior's sacramental exodus as we consider uh, our approach to the Lord's table. First, the Savior's symbolic exodus. Now this occurs early in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. There's an instance where, uh, as we've looked at in our text, where His life experience, even from an early age and then early in His ministry, serves to depict and, and, if you will, dramatize the redemptive reality of the Exodus in such a way to point the attention of God's people and to point our attention as well to Christ as the greater Moses. Christ as the one who brings forth the decisive Exodus. But first we see it as a symbolic Exodus. And uh, just to sort of whet your appetite here, I have a question for you. Something of a Bible trivia question, although nothing in the Bible is trivial. Uh, Who was taken to Egypt in order to preserve life by Joseph, the son of Jacob, a man who received multiple revelatory dreams? Who was taken to Egypt in order to preserve life by Joseph, the son of Jacob, a man who received multiple revelatory dreams? Well, there are two answers to this. Two possible answers. First, Israel. Uh, The sons of Jacob and Jacob himself. Israel was taken to Egypt in order to preserve life. You remember the famine in the days of Joseph, the son of Jacob, who took the family of Israel into Egypt to preserve life. And he was a man, Joseph, who received multiple revelatory dreams. The other answer that would be correct, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was also taken to Egypt in order to preserve life by Joseph, 
the son of Jacob, if you look at the genealogy, a man who received multiple revelatory dreams. Now, uh, I know A.W. Pink is famous, if not infamous, for finding, what is it, 70 or 100 or however many uh, connections between Joseph in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're not going to go that deep with with that kind of uh, scrutiny. But the fact of the matter is that the early life and circumstances of the Lord Jesus Christ, in many ways, if you do begin to put it under the microscope, uh, reflects the reality of His embodiment of God's covenant people, Israel. We saw in one of our previous sermons that in Isaiah 49.3, the Messianic servant of the Lord is spoken of as Israel. And so you see Jesus' life circumstances even at a young age, reflect his representation as the head of the church and the mediator of God's covenant people. Uh, And you see this in the flight to and from Egypt. Look at the circumstances. Just like prior to the Exodus in the book of Exodus, uh, where Pharaoh is committing genocide, infanticide, and seeking eventually uh, threatening the life of Moses, Here you have the Lord Jesus Christ under threat from Herod, another wicked king who's guilty of shedding innocent blood and uh, large-scale infanticide, and yet just as Moses is whisked away in the providence of God and spared, even so the Lord Jesus is spared as well. Moses was spared by entering Pharaoh's courts in Egypt. Jesus is spared by being whisked away at the command of the angel into Egypt itself. And Herod attempts to, that, to, to slaughter Jesus. He can't get a hold of Jesus, so he, he, he attempts to slaughter all the babies, all the male children in Bethlehem under a certain age. Uh, Jesus goes to Egypt, and then Jesus, as Israel came out of Egypt, he's summoned back out of Egypt with the death of Herod. And so you can see in principle that just as God saved His people and preserved their life as a whole by bringing them to Egypt under Joseph and then bringing them out of Egypt under Moses. Even so, Christ was preserved in going to Egypt and being called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. What what Matthew is telling us here is that Israel's corporate adoption, their status as the firstborn son. Remember Moses said, God says, let my people go. My firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. Matthew's saying that God's covenant people receive that adoption in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. He ultimately is God's firstborn son. And we'll see something of that in, in, later in the sermon. But you see this symbolic dramatization out of Egypt. And then you see the Lord Jesus Christ entering the wilderness. Uh, Not for 40 years, as Israel came out of Egypt and then entered the wilderness for 40 years, but the Lord Jesus enters a time of wilderness temptation for 40 days, right at the beginning of His ministry. You'll recall He goes to the Jordan River. Actually, He goes to the other side, beyond the Jordan, the other side of the Jordan River, uh, to receive John's baptism in a place called Bethabara, the house of passage, which is actually, many commentators, uh, and I would agree with them, believe 
that this is the place where Joshua and the Israelites crossed over the Jordan River on dry land when essentially the Exodus reached its final culmination. See, we can speak of the Exodus as just the flight from Egypt, but really, if you think biblically, holistically, it includes the flight from Egypt, it includes the trek across the wilderness, and it includes the entrance into the promised land. And you can see that in Exodus chapter 3, verses 8 and 17. When God speaks of the Exodus on the front end, it includes the whole process. So Christ has a symbolic Exodus, not just coming out of Egypt as a child, but He actually enters the wilderness at the outset of His ministry by crossing to the other side of the Jordan River to receive baptism from John. At the very same place, likely, where Joshua and the Israelites went into the promised land on dry ground and in fact set up stones as a memorial. And don't we find John the Baptist pointing out to the Pharisaical hypocrites, God is able to raise up children of Israel, children for Abraham from these stones. And so scholars point this out, that, that this seems to be the place where God's people pass through the Jordan into the promised land. And so John is calling people to go back into the wilderness to be tested, to be tried, to hear his preaching and examine themselves, to receive baptism, and then to re-enter the land. It's, it's a, 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 in his own ministry, in a sense, is re-dramatizing the entrance into the land. And so Christ goes into the wilderness. He receives that baptism on the other side of the Jordan. And then He goes into the wilderness. He remains in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Pointing us to the wilderness temptation of Israel. And in that battle, hand-to-hand spiritual combat with the devil all the verses that are quoted back and forth in the debate between Christ and the devil deal with Israel in the wilderness. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy on multiple occasions, and the devil quotes Psalm 91, the text from our previous communion season, in which it deals with the wilderness experience of God's people. And so Christ, uh, He doesn't wander in the wilderness, but He's tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, And you know, in connection with that, what does John say of him during his baptism right before he faced Satan in the wilderness? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. So here Jesus is set forth as the Passover Lamb. Why is it that all the Egyptian firstborn were slaughtered, but the firstborn of the Israelites who were also idolatrous sinners against God, complaining against God, rejecting Moses time and time again, why is it that the firstborn of the Israelites were not destroyed? Because there, there was a Passover lamb whose blood was shed and the blood was applied to the doorpost of God's people. And so their firstborn sons were redeemed. And their nation as a whole uh, was a picture of this corporate redemption. Israel is my firstborn son. Well, why is it that their firstborn were not destroyed? Because God's firstborn son, as it were, the firstborn over all creation, His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sin and the guilt of God's people. And so John says, behold, this is the Lamb of God. If you're going to go back into the wilderness and re-enter the land, in fellowship with God through repentance and faith, understand 
It needs to be through faith in the shed blood of the Lamb who was slain. The Lamb of God. And what does God say? What does the Father declare at the Lord's baptism? He says, this is My beloved Son. The firstborn. uh, The Lamb of God. You see all the Exodus imagery. And Jesus battles Satan in the temptation for 40 days. And then we're told that He makes His grand entrance. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes out of the temptation in the wilderness. And then, of necessity, He crosses back over the Jordan into the promised land filled with the Holy Spirit. And He preaches and He heals and He does many marvelous works. And as the greater Joshua, He begins that spiritual conquest with the sword proceeding out of His mouth in the promised land. And all of this by way of the symbolic exodus of our Lord is merely preparation which points us to His decisive exodus. Uh, Everything that we've mentioned so far is symbolic. It's important. uh, It's helpful. It's instructive. There's no doubt. But these are, the not, these are not the things upon which our eternal redemption hinges. That Jesus came out of Egypt as a child. Or you know, His baptism uh, in the Jordan and so on and so forth. These things in and of themselves are not the, the substance of His redemptive work. It's all part of the equation, of course. But, but we turn now to the Savior's decisive exodus. Now, you may recall that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9.31, Jesus, uh, probably at night, uh, was up on this mountain with three of His disciples praying. And all of a sudden, Jesus was transfigured before them. And there was a sneak preview of the glorious body of Christ. And He shone brighter than the sun. And He appeared there to these disciples who unfortunately were falling asleep for part of this, if you can imagine it. But... He appears there with Moses and Elijah. And we're told that they're they're discussing His decease. But literally in the Greek, it's His exodus. They're having a conversation. This is Jesus Christ, Moses and Elijah concerning the Lord's exodus. This is a reference to the Lord's saving work. We're going to look at some of the elements of this. Um, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But understand, this is not only referring to his death. When you see the word decease, you think, well, they're talking about his death and and only his death. Uh, And certainly it would have included a discussion about his death. After all, you think of Moses as the one God raised up to lead Israel out of bondage in Egypt uh, through the, the blood of the Passover lamb and uh, so on and so forth, all the, all the imagery of Christ's death for the sins of His people. And Moses who led Israel through the Red Sea on dry land as they went down into sort of the, the belly of the Red Sea, down into this realm of death, the water that would eventually uh, submerge and destroy the Egyptians. They're in that realm and then they come up out of it as if reborn into a new life in communion with God baptized into Moses, and you see this resurrection imagery. So, of course, as we think of this conversation with Moses, you can think where, where it's leading. But especially Elijah. Think of Elijah. What was Elijah's major exodus? It was his ascension into heaven. 
I mean, what kind of exodus do you think Elijah was interested in talking about there? Okay? Elijah and Moses are both known for their exodus, and we preached on this a number of years ago. We don't have time to get back into it with, with Moses, but with Elijah especially, uh, Elijah's exodus was his ascension, his bodily ascension with the whirlwind and the fiery chariot into heaven. Surely a, a, a picture of what Christ would do having died and been raised and then 40 days later rising up and entering into the heavenly Canaan itself. So they're discussing the full scope of Christ's redemptive work, His exodus, His decisive exodus by which He redeems us out of bondage to sin and brings us to glory. And so first we think of His death. Again, this is what we think of most directly. Second Peter 1.15, Peter speaks of his own pen, uh, impending decease. And he's referring to his death, his exodus, as the text says. So Jesus and Moses and Elijah are discussing his death, his departure. That Jesus would actually depart this world. That his soul would go to paradise and his body would be buried in the tomb. He, he, he departed. In one sense, it causes us to think of the Day of Atonement. Uh, we think of Jesus who, who took our sins away. Jesus, uh, the, the, the One who brings this great exodus where He separates our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. The moment that He died, the moment that His soul and body were separated and were, were, were as it were, rent asunder, Even so, it was at that moment that He took away all of our sins like the scapegoat who departs, who who has the hands of the priest placed upon Him, imputing the sin of the people to that goat, and then He goes outside the camp and He's gone. The Lord Jesus Christ departed taking all of our sins away. But even more so, I think, we think of the Passover. We think of the, the one who was the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed, and whose blood is applied to the doorpost, as it were, of every believer, so that when the wrath of God, when the, the angel of death, when the judgment of God comes calling, when the man comes around, as they say, uh, there is blood upon your doorpost, and you're saved. And the wrath of God does not abide upon you. It's not poured out upon you. It was poured out upon Christ on the cross. He was slaughtered and slain. The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And my friends, He is the only one that could fulfill that type. He is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. The only begotten of the Father. He's called the firstborn of Mary. And at the temple, Mary and Joseph took Jesus and consecrated Him according to all the ceremonies of the law of Moses, setting Him apart and offering the sacrifices for the firstborn who opens the womb. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the one whom uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says, purged away all our sins. And it says that, when God brought the firstborn into the world, He's the firstborn. He's he's God's only begotten Son. And my friends, 
No one can take away your sin but the infinite, eternal, glorious Son of God. Your sin deserves infinite wrath from God. That's why hell is eternal. Because a finite creature simply cannot exhaust the wrath of God in sustaining it for a period of time until it's finished. Only an infinite, eternal, unchangeable, only begotten Son of God can sustain the infinite weight of God's wrath against sinners. Only the blood of God Himself in human flesh upon your doorpost can save you from the far more exceeding and infinite weight of God's wrath against you. And so Jesus fulfilled that type and shadow. In fact, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. I mean, it's unbelievable. Matthew 26, verse 5, you've got Jesus' enemies and they're plotting and scheming. And this is one of those verses that just, I love reading it. Maybe second to the angel sitting on the stone. This is one of my favorites from, from Matthew's account where his enemies are, you know, they're getting Judas involved and they've got their plan and their scheme. And they say, but not at the feast, right? We're going to arrest him. We're going to bring about his death and destruction. We're going to find a way. We've got a plan, but not at the feast. Oh, at the feast. It's going to be at the feast. They don't think it's going to be at the feast. They're doing everything they can, but again, it shows that what's happening in the betrayal and the false arrest and condemnation and crucifixion of Christ is not merely the hands of wicked men. It's the hand of God. Not at the feast. At the feast. It has to be at the feast because this is the Lamb of God. This is the Passover Lamb, the firstborn who's given for the sins of the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And my friends, when Christ died for our sins and accomplished this most crucial aspect of the spiritual exodus of God's people, we're told that it redeemed us from enslavement. Hebrews 2.14 Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, See, these are the sons of God. Out of Egypt I called My sons. Brought many sons to glory. These children have partaken of flesh and blood. Just the same, He Himself likewise shared in the same. That through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. We've said earlier in our series that Pharaoh is as a, a serpent, as a great dragon, as a leviathan. He's presented in all this satanic language. He held us hostage and captive in our sins. Satan. Uh, this uh, Pharaoh-like figure. And the fact is Jesus destroyed Him. Even as the, the waves came crashing down on the head of Pharaoh, even so Christ came crashing down on the head of the serpent, destroying the devil and destroying his capacity to tyrannize us and enslave us. It says, He released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Subject and enslaved to the fear of death. Isn't it beautiful that when Peter contemplates his own death, he uses the word exodus. 
He doesn't use a negative word. He uses a positive word. He's saying that though I desire to remain and labor among you, yet when I die, that's going to be my liberation. That's going to be my liberation to whatever extent to which my remaining sin holds me under and I'm sold under it and I'm influenced by it. I'll be free of sin. I'll be free of this present evil age. And I'll be enlisted in heaven with the church of the firstborn. It's my exodus. You see, my friends, we pray, and we have prayed this Lord's Day for those who are going under the knife tomorrow. And perhaps we have our own situation that maybe nobody else knows about, and our life is somehow in danger, or there's anxiety about ourselves or another loved one in Christ. But this is telling us that Christ has achieved the decisive exodus, that He's our forerunner, that that He has been raised from the dead, that He's the firstborn over all creation, but He's also the firstborn from among the dead, Colossians 1. And He's the firstborn among many brethren. And as the firstborn, as the representative of His people, He has risen again victoriously. He has conquered death. He has ascended into heaven as our forerunner into the promised land of heaven. And He's gone to prepare a place for us where He Himself is in the highest heavens. He's gone to our fatherland, as you you see in the Greek of Hebrews chapter 11, when it says that heavenly country. The word country is the word for fatherland. The father's house, the father's land, that fatherly inheritance, that patrimony that Christ, the eternal Son of God, has earned for us, has purchased for us through His death, through His resurrection. He's now gone into it to enjoy it on our behalf As our catechism says, He ascended not just for Himself, but for us in our nature. And on our behalf, He's seated there in heavenly places so that He may be our forerunner who has gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And our citizenship is not in this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. Here we have no continuing city. And you see, our death for the believer, it's an exodus. It's an exodus out of Egypt and, and not even out of the wilderness. It's the culmination in some sense, at least for our soul, as we enter into the promised land of Canaan, our homeland, our fatherland, our Father's house in heaven. From slavery to sonship, this beautiful, decisive redemption through the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now thirdly, we consider the Savior's sacramental exodus. And we use that word sacramental in reference to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, uh, which is a sign and seal, a visible token and means of grace pointing us to the reality of the Gospel. The reality of the saving work of Christ. His decisive exodus through His death, resurrection, and ascension on behalf of believers, we see this reflected and and set forth visibly, displayed as it were, in the Lord's Supper. The Savior's sacramental exodus. Now, I don't have to remind you that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. As He's celebrating the Passover 
with his disciples. Yes, it was the night in which he was betrayed, but it was also the night in which they celebrated the Passover. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, after supper, he took the cup. So after that Passover meal, uh, the Lord's Supper was celebrated that very evening, even as we're here tonight at an evening service. Uh, But the Lord instituted His sacrament of the Lord's Supper at the Passover. And so this sacrament reminds us of His decisive exodus on our behalf. It reminds us of our exodus and our future glory as we enter into the promised land of the heavenly Canaan. Well, let's consider some of the aspects of this sacramental exodus through the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's Supper is for those who have been brought out of Egypt. It's for the sons and daughters of God. Those of whom we can say that that God has declared, out of Egypt, I called my son. It's not for those who are still in Egypt or those in whom Egypt still remains as the dominating decisive force in their hearts and lives. The Lord's Supper is for those who say that uh, my only comfort in life and death is that I belong to my Lord Jesus Christ who saved me from my sins. He's brought me out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And that's the same imagery that you find in the Passover itself. Exodus 13. What is it that parents, these believing Israelites, are to say to their children when they're asked about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the ordinance of the Passover. Exodus 13.8 And you shall tell your son in that day, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Now that's powerful. And in some sense, you see the immediate application to that generation that came out of Egypt and they could say, I was there. I experienced it in terms of the literal historical exodus. But you see, my friends, there's something here, no doubt, that Moses is declaring for every Israelite. And we can apply it in a New Testament context to believers who come to the Lord's table where he's saying that this sacrament, this ordinance, whether it's the Passover or the Lord's Supper, is something that is done because of what the Lord did for me. He loved me. And He gave Himself for me. It's not just, well, this is what the Lord did for the church. And this is what the Lord did for Israel as His firstborn son collectively. And I'm a member of the church. But when your children ask you about what you're doing at this table, you're to tell them, this is what God has done for my soul. And you need to show that to your children. You need to tell them what God is doing in your life and what He has done. And how He brought you out of bondage to sin in Egypt. And whatever your testimony is, whether it's a testimony like Timothy, where he knew the Scriptures from an early age which made him wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. You know What an exciting testimony. His mom and his grandma led him to Christ. That is an exciting testimony. That's a massively exciting testimony because God saved someone from bondage in Egypt and brought them into His kingdom. 
And so as you're coming to this table, you're coming as someone who says, Jesus died for me. Now, that doesn't mean that you're coming with maximum optimal assurance that, that you have uh, absolute full assurance and confidence and there are no issues between you and the Lord where you're struggling in this area and you perhaps have some doubts and discouragements and so on and so forth. It's not saying that you know, you're know you a 99th percentile super saint, but what it is saying is that you're coming as someone who says, Jesus Christ is my only comfort. He's my faithful Savior. And whatever doubts, whatever struggles and discouragements in my life, I cling to Him and let me tell you what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It's personal. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And of course, the Lord uh, embeds these kinds of things into the psalm book so that His people can sing in this way. Uh, You're familiar perhaps with Psalm 66, uh, where at the end of the psalm, a verse that's quoted very often, verse 18 Or verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God and I will declare what He has done for my soul. And that's a verse that every true believer should be able to apply. We should be able to declare what God has done for our soul. We should probably be talking about that more than we do. But the fact of the matter is, verse 16 of Psalm 66 does not appear in a vacuum. It's not merely... Let me tell you what God did for my soul just now. Or, you know, let me tell you how God answered my prayer last week. That's part of it. But it's interesting, if you go earlier in the psalm, verses 5 and 6, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in Him. You see, what the psalmist is doing is he's reflecting not just on what God did for his soul presently, but he's looking back to what God did for his soul in redeeming Israel out of bondage. He's looking at God's redemptive works throughout history. And he's reveling in them. And by faith, he's brought near to them. Isn't that interesting, the way that that it's put there? They went through the river on foot. So this is many generations after the Exodus. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice in Him. And so you come to the Lord's table and you think, well, Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. But this sacrament by faith takes you right back there to remember the Lord's death until He comes. To contemplate it. To see it vividly portrayed before you. There we will rejoice at the cross of Calvary. There we will rejoice. Not just thinking of all the the centurion, surely this is the Son of God, and thinking of the dying thief entering paradise, and thinking of the, the believing women looking from afar. No, but we will rejoice. This sacrament brings us near to our spiritual exodus. It's for those who can come to this table Uh, with the same profession of faith, perhaps not the same degree of sanctification, but the same profession of faith as Moses. Uh, Hebrews 
11, verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By coming to this table in renewing your membership vows, what are you doing? You're renewing your commitment to renounce the world, to turn your back on the world, the flesh, and the devil, forsaking all others, and to cling and cleave to your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your head and husband. You will obey Him. You will honor Him. You will serve Him as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. You'll seek first His kingdom in all aspects of your life. You're refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You're choosing rather with Moses to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Jesus says you're not worthy to be called His disciple if you will not count up the cost and be willing to hate your own life, to turn your back on father and mother where it's required for the sake of Christ, to to forsake everything for Him. If you're not willing to do that by the grace of God, relying entirely upon Him, then you, you can't come to this table. Because this is a table for those who have been called out of Egypt. Those who esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Those who are looking to the reward. And when you come to this table, you're looking at the reward. You're seeing what Jesus spilled, His own blood, to purchase that reward. His broken body. But you're also feasting upon that bread from heaven. You're also gathering with the people of God, being drawn near to God at His table, feasting as it were with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets, anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. My friends, uh, look to that reward. That's how to come to this table. That's who it's intended for. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, if this was a Roman Catholic Mass, uh, you wouldn't be able to apply that verse here because you'd be looking at the wine and the bread and, uh, you know, the, the bread is your God, O Israel, right? Just like the golden calf in the Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, you can see it. You can taste it. You've got wine and you need to bow to it because it is the physical blood of Jesus Christ. But you see... Uh, We walk not by sight, but by faith. Like Moses, we forsake Egypt and we endure as seeing Him who is invisible. We endure as communing with a Savior we've never laid eyes on with our physical eyes. We endure as partaking of spiritual blessings in heavenly places that we've never seen tangibly. We weren't there at the cross. We weren't there at the empty tomb. We can't see Jesus in our midst right now. We can't see the invisible God, the Holy Spirit, actively applying His Word and sacrament to the hearts of believers. We can't see the glorious world to come. All we have is a feast that in the eyes of this world is pathetic. You've got some tables, you've got some psalm sheets, you've got some bread, some wine, some trays. Uh, it's nothing in the eyes of the world. But for the believer, for Moses, uh, for the true Christian, 
We forsake Egypt with its visible, impressive pyramids and and gold and riches and all of the wealth that was buried with those kings that are burning in the pit of hell. We reject it all. And we endure seeing Him who is invisible. My friends, that is what this sacrament is all about. It's a table in the wilderness. Psalm 78.19, a table in the wilderness. God has set before us in the wilderness of this life, in this intervening period where we're being tested and tempted. We have not yet crossed the Jordan into our heavenly inheritance, and yet He spreads before us a table in the wilderness. We're not home yet. We're strangers and pilgrims and He gives us manna and He causes our shoes not to wear out and He provides for us and protects us and guides us through this life. No, we don't have a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, but we have something better. The Word and Spirit of God to a much fuller degree than the old covenant saints enjoyed guiding us and leading us into all truth. We have this sacrament where we can feast upon the Word of God and then the visible Word confirming it, strengthening our faith. We have bread from heaven. We have Christ, our heavenly manna. Listen to what the Lord Jesus says of Himself. He's speaking of Himself. He's speaking of His Word but it's difficult not to find some application to the Lord's Supper here. John 6.27 Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. God has set His seal on Christ. Jesus at His baptism, the Father declared, this is My beloved Son. He did it at the transfiguration. He did it ultimately by raising Him from the dead. He set Him at His right hand. He set His seal on Him. And my friends, we have this outward seal by which the Father strengthens our faith and authenticates the reality of His precious promises in Christ to each and every believer. This sign and seal of the covenant of grace by which we're fed by the Word. And then the the Word, as it were, becomes mighty and strong and even more powerful through the means of the sacrament by which we're fed with Christ, the bread from heaven. And we enjoy the, the eternal life that we have in Him. Verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger, and he who believes in Me shall never thirst. This is one of the precious aspects of the Lord's Supper that we come to Him. Uh, That the believer, the communicant believer comes to the table, comes to the Lord Jesus Christ as it were, and believes on Him and professes that faith publicly uh, and, and will never hunger and will never thirst. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And you see the Jews uh, remarking 
in various critical ways against him and complaining. But he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. So when you come to this table, this is not a snack. This is not a snack. This is not just, oh, you know, uh, you know moving around the room, I'll get you know, a little of this, a little of that. Um, this is your life. This is your food. This is all you need for eternal life. I'm not saying the physical elements, but I'm saying you're coming to this table saying Jesus Christ is my bread from heaven. He's my spiritual food. He's my spiritual drink. Every ounce of spiritual nourishment that I could ever need, every ounce of spiritual nourishment that I could ever have is in Him and in Him alone. His broken body. His shed blood. And so I eat the bread and I drink the wine and I receive the elements as a public profession that I am at the same exact time by faith spiritually receiving all grace that I need for life and godliness from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Bread from heaven. And of course, in this sacrament we see a picture of entrance into the promised land. Isn't that what Jesus intended when He told us that we're to remember Him until He comes. We're to proclaim His death until He comes. And He said that He desired to drink this cup anew with His people in the Father's heavenly kingdom. This table is a wedding feast. And we are the bride of Christ and we come to the feast. We're the, the virgins. If we're, uh, well, we're, hopefully we're not foolish virgins, but perhaps we're wise virgins who have fallen asleep. The Lord awakens us. He brings us to the table. And He feasts with us. He communes with us. And when you go to a wedding reception, right, there's that special table where you've got the bride and the groom. And depending on how close you are in terms of friendships and relationships, you know, you might be on the far end or, you know, you might be at the table if you're a maid of honor or best man or something like that. Um, or you might be way off in the corner. Uh, but the fact is at this table, Jesus is with us. He's in us. He's everywhere, right? So at this table, it's not like he's over here and somebody's over there on the bench or whatever it is. Okay, Jesus is present and we are all at His table. We're all at the table of honor. We're all with Christ. Uh, he, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Open the door and I will come in and I will sup with you individually and corporately. Sitting at the table of honor with that glorious bridegroom. Uh, and of course, we long for the day when we no longer need this sacrament. Uh, when we can be like the Israelites when they were recircumcised and refashioned and, and uh, restored and recommissioned under Joshua to go into the land and they celebrated that last Passover of their wilderness wanderings and were told that after that moment the manna ceased and it was gone. And, and that from that point on they ate from the good of that promised land that God had led them into by a mighty hand. Do you not long for the day when this sacrament will be traded in for something far greater in heaven to come? When Christ, the life-giving Spirit, 
Christ the vine, Christ the source of all life and goodness and joy and blessedness is one with His people in an eternal honeymoon of joy and peace and righteousness. World without end. That is to be on our minds when we come to this table. Coming to Jesus. We're we're renouncing Egypt. We're feasting at a table in the wilderness. We're receiving all we need for life and godliness from the bread of heaven. And we're anticipating the culmination of our spiritual exodus when we enter into the land of promise. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we feel at times overwhelmed with our own sinfulness. We feel at times, as Romans 7 speaks, sold under sin. Not doing what we know we ought to be doing. And convicted of sin that we have failed to do many things that we feel a duty to perform. Lord God, look upon us in mercy. Cause our conviction of sin to be a sorrow not unto death, but unto repentance and life and joy and peace through the blood of Christ and through the sanctifying power of Your Holy Spirit. We pray that You would stir us up and increase our appetite to come to this table on this evening that we might feast upon the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the whole Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. May we feast upon the Word preached and the Word sung and the Word read and the Word visible and even the Word Himself by faith that He would feed us unto eternal life through His finished work. We ask in His name. Amen.